Welcome to King's Church Podcast. We hope you enjoy this message. For more information about King's Church, visit kcnyc.org. All right, so we're going to read chapter 4, 1 through 5. Those are the scriptures we're going to hit tonight. And we'll go one by one. Let's do it. After this, I looked and behold a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice which I heard speaking like a Speaking to me like a trumpet said, come up here and I will show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the spirit and behold, a throne stood in heaven with one seated on the throne. And he who sat there had the appearance of Jasper and Carnelian. And around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of, a rent, excuse me, of an emerald. Around the throne were 24 elders and four, excuse me. 24 thrones, and seated on the thrones were 24 elders, clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their heads. From the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder. And before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. So just to, just to recap where we're at right now, Something that I often hear is we really need to focus on the words of Jesus. We need to really focus on the teachings of Christ. And by that, people normally mean we need to really focus on the Beatitudes. And the Beatitudes are the words of Jesus. And we do need to focus on the Beatitudes. We talked about the Beatitudes this morning uh, in the first service. But we have to remember that thus far, Revelation chapter 1 through 3 is Jesus himself talking to John, especially chapters two and three. Jesus is the Jesus of the Beatitudes that says to be nice and love people and all that kind of stuff. And Jesus is also the Jesus of Revelation that says, if you don't straighten it out, I'm going to blot your name out of the book of life. And we have to be Christians that are mature enough to have the balance of both things at the same time, rather than saying, well, you know, in the revelations kind of thing, that was like, that's end times. We don't really need to think about that. We really just need to focus on this being nice aspect. But Jesus is not simply nice. And I was watching the 1979 cartoon version of The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe last night. Has anybody seen that masterpiece? Jeff, of course you have. Raheem, really? I didn't expect that. Good work. You're cultured. What can I say? You're cultured. Um, I hadn't seen it before. And there's, you know, the scene where the beavers are in their room with the kids and, and they want to know if the lion's nice. And he's not nice. He's dangerous, but he's good. And he's, kind, he's, he's good and kind and just and beautiful, but he's not nice. And that's who Jesus is. And that's why C.S. Lewis can paint the picture of Aslan, who's like a, a, a salvific figure, a, a Christ type, to be this power source that's incredible and beautiful and sacrificial, but nice is not in the vocabulary or in the descriptor of who Jesus is. Beautiful, you know, kind, just, dangerous, all of those things represent who Jesus is. And now we're going to transition from the words of Jesus and his chastisement and encouragement of the church to specifically this next portion of revelation that Daniel has. And so we're going to see in chapter four and five, the exaltation of God and Christ over the cosmos, 
the power of God, his sovereignty and divinity over all of the universe, over all of the things of man, over all creation, over all time, and we'll see God kind of exploding literally in this kind of multicolored picture of who he is and his power. And this, we've said this a lot, and just to remind you, Revelation is a book of prophecy, and John is functioning as a prophet. And in the same exact way, we see Daniel chapter 7, and the book of Daniel, when Daniel has this open revelation of, of heaven, he sees heaven in almost the same exact way that Joseph sees it. Daniel looks, he sees a throne in Daniel 7, 9, God sitting on it, again, Daniel 7, 9. God's appearance is described, it's the same from Daniel 7, 9 to Revelation 4, 3. There's fire before the throne in Daniel, Daniel 7, 9, the same in Revelation 4, 5. There are myriads of myriads of heavenly beings surrounding the throne. Daniel 7, 10, Revelation 5, 11. There are books that are opened. There's a divine figure that approaches and receives a kingdom that will last forever. It's going to be a picture of Christ that we'll get into. This, this kingdom consists of all peoples and all nations and all tongues. The prophetic experiences distresses, excuse me, on account of the vision. The prophet passes out or falls over or freaks out because it's just too intense, too powerful. We're talking about God, the creator of the universe. And then finally, the prophet receives wisdom as to what is exactly going on here. It's not just a bizarre picture with no interpretation. Um, so let's jump right into verse one. After this, I looked and behold, no, I'm not, sorry, I gotta back up. <laughs> this kingdom consists of all peoples and all nations and all tongues. And so fundamentally, the people of God that are called by God and chosen by God, those who produce fruit as of the kingdom of heaven, those who rely on Christ as Lord and Savior, that group of people looks like nations and tribes and tongues. All of the people of the earth represented as different nations and tribes and tongues are the people that come before God. They're before God as his people, as people he's joined, they're bought by the blood of Jesus, and they're people that walk in righteousness before him. The issue, the, the, the beauty of the, of, the, of the spectacle is that you have different nations and tribes and tongues, and it's this incredibly diverse perspective. What makes them fundamentally the same is that they become a brand new nation and people in Christ Jesus our Lord. And so we at King's Church, we've, we have a diverse church. We've always had a diverse church. And yet I almost never talk about diversity. And you can say, why is that? Because what fundamentally brings us together is the blood of Jesus and walking in righteousness, relying upon the Holy Spirit. And those are the things that don't bring our church together. They bring the church universal together. And we have a church culture right now that's like, well, we need like three people from, you know, Uganda and we need three people from Ukraine and three people from Yugoslavia. Can I think of another U country? Let's, can I do it? <laughs> Probably not. Uzbekistan, exactly. And then we'll be, then we'll be unified. And that's not true. Unity is established by God's throne 
by Christ himself and by having a new identity in the nation of Christ. And those sub-nations will have all different kinds of looks and vibes. And there'll be a, a nation that's maybe like six blocks that way that will be only Korean people. And that's not racist. Am I right or am I right? Like that's the preference of people joining people that are like them culturally, that are similar to them, that like a similar kind of music. The fundamentals is the blood of Jesus and pursuing him in righteousness. Those are the fundamentals, right? Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Those are the two fundamental poles. All of the other stuff is fun and unique and exciting. And I really like our music. I would prefer if it wasn't like we didn't, like I don't want one of those Australian things where they're like, that's a terrible, terrible representation of those devices. But I don't want one of those on the worship team, for instance. It's just a style thing. The fundamentals are Christ and his kingdom, right? The way it looks is just like, it's, it's surface level stuff. And I read a book this week and this pastor said, if your church doesn't look like the exact demographics of your city, then you have a problem. And I was like, that's just not true. Like, that's not true. If there's a, if there's a bunch of Ukrainians that have a Ukrainian church down there, it doesn't mean they're racist. What, are you out of your mind? Why are you, like, why are you alleging something rather horrific upon the people of God? Why would you do that? And so... I think it's absolutely phenomenal that before the throne there are every different tribe and tongue and nation. I think that's an, a, an offshoot, a natural growth of the correct pursuit of the kingdom of God. I think if you do the kingdom of God rightly, it just kind of grows naturally. It's just kind of this bouquet of flowers and maybe the bouquet's in a certain neighborhood and looks like a certain thing or there's a certain communication style that gathers certain kinds of people it's not the surface things that matter. It's the deep things that matter that establish us in the kingdom of God and make us a part of this eternal kingdom that goes on forever and ever and ever. Um, the the hyper-focus on things of the flesh is fleshly. <laughs> Very simple. The hyper-focus on things of the flesh is fleshly. Uh, the hyper-focus on Jesus and his blood and what he does and how he unifies us, Galatians talks all about that, is the way we're joined in Christ Jesus, our Lord, and we're brought before this crazy place now. And you'll see that in a second. 4-1. After this, I looked and behold, the door standing open in heaven and the first voice which I heard, had heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, come up here and I will show you what must take place after this. And so basically you have... John, he has, he's on the island of Patmos. It's on the Lord's day, if you'll remember. And he has this initial vision, right? And in this initial vision, he goes into the heavenly places and he sees God and angels and all kinds of crazy stuff happening. And this is like part one of the vision because there's like a part one, part two, part three, part four. And if we don't understand what's happening, then we're like, what part is in the vision? When you see this phrase right here, church, after this I looked, chapter four, verse one, that means we're in a new vision. Like John is having, a, he's looking again and God is showing him something new and unique. And so it says, 
After this, I looked and behold, a door standing open at heaven. And the first voice, which I heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, come up here and I will show you what must take place after this. Now, as the chapters roll out and the verses roll out, we're going to see a brand new baby that's born. We're going to see a dragon that tries to eat the baby. We're going to see that the baby escapes into Egypt and all of this wild stuff. And you could be asking yourself the question, which is what I would ask if I hadn't read the commentary, why is God going back in time and telling John about things that already happened? When, when John steps before the throne, as we're about to talk about here, God is outside of time. So I was meeting with a lawyer a couple of months ago and she's like, David, this question always bothers me about God and it's like the thing I can't get past. She's like, what was before God? Like God created the world, what happened before him? And I said, what you're, what you're missing, madam, is that all things created, all things visible and visible, this is what the scripture says, were created by God through Christ Jesus, Right? All things visible and invisible, all concepts, all ideas, all theories, all physical realities, all non-physical realities, right? Math, math, you know math, it's a physical reality, although it's not tangibly physical, but its laws are, are unbreakable. All things were made by God inside of the created order. God exists outside of the created order. So when you take before and you place it upon God, before. God created the idea of before. God created the idea of after. God created time itself and all things material and immaterial. So when John goes before the throne, I'm using the word before here, he's leaving time and he's seeing history play out. And in history, we're going to see Christ appear and defeat the dragon and all of this kind of cool stuff. Okay, then it says this. It says, the, the voice from the, the, the trumpet-like voices, come up here and I'm going to show you what, may t- what will take place after this. And after this is last days terminology. The, after this and the term last days or latter t- days are often interchangeably used in the New Testament. And let's take a look here at Acts chapter 2, verse 16 and 17. Um, Peter is standing before the church that's just been imbued with the power of the Holy Spirit, and he's testifying about Christ. He says, this is what was spoken about by the prophet Joel. In the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people, and your sons and your daughters will prophesy, and your young men will see visions, and your old men will dream dreams. Okay, how many of you have heard it said that we are in the last days? How many people? Yes, thank you. Grew up in church. Well, that's correct, It has been the last days for the last 2,000 years. That's exactly what the scripture says. Like literally what it says. It says, this is what was spoken about the prophet. In the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. And when Jesus left the earth, he said, I'm going to give you my spirit, a comforter that is going to be with you and guide you and empower you to live a godly life. And since that point, which was 2,000 approximate years ago, Jesus has given us his spirit to walk in these last days. Some, some um, 
translations don't say last, they say latter days. But if we say that, we'll sound like the latter day saints and I'll get fired. We can't do that. Um, And so we're currently in this epoch of the last days where God is growing his church. It's called the church age where the kingdom of heaven is expanding. It says of Jesus, of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. It didn't say like the kingdom of heaven is going to start out. We're going to have a few good years and then it's going to go dark during the black, black times. What is that called? Dark ages. (laughs) The medieval period. It's going dark. God's not doing anything. And the end. No, of the expansion of his kingdom and government, there will be no end. And God's kingdom continues to expand. And tens of thousands of people still get saved every day around the world. And I know it's hard to perceive that or, 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 walk in a way where that's acknowledged in our soul because we're watching the West crumble because wealth and prosperity often brings pride and arrogance and God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. And so if our wealth and prosperity make us arrogant, God will oppose us. And then our nation starts to fall apart and we say, oh man, Christianity is over while it's exploding in South America right now, while it's exploding in Africa right now, while Christianity is exploding throughout Asia right now. And people are like, well, the West is done. Jesus is going to come back in five minutes. And I say to them, why would God not want to save the tens and hundreds of thousands of people that he's going to save this year? He's just going to press pause and say, sorry, guys, no, no good for you. Door closed. I don't think so. I think the kingdom of God will continue to expand for some time and then circle the globe in a complete way. We talked about that a couple of weeks ago. So let's go verse two. At once I was in the spirit and behold, a throne stood in heaven with one seated on the throne. Now, the word throne is mentioned 17 times in chapters four and five. It's uh, mentioned 21 times in chapters six through 22. The word throne is mentioned a lot in this book. And the throne represents God's power, his dominion, his sovereignty, and control over the universe. Back in the day, they had thrones. They didn't have oval offices. Could you imagine if it said oval office? It wouldn't be nearly as cool if it was like God in the oval office, seated above the heavens. Thrones. That's what we have. Ezekiel chapter 10. I looked and I saw the likeness of a throne of lapis lazuli, and above the vault of the heads were the cherubim. And the Lord said to the man clothed in linen, go among the wheels of the cherubim, fill your hands with burning coals from among the cherubim and scatter them over the city. Ezekiel has a very similar vision to what John has when he approaches the throne of God. He sees God on the throne, surrounded by myriads, John sees, not myriads, but he sees elders, and then he'll see myriads in a little bit later. But God's throne represents his power and authority. And we don't do this anymore. We don't swear like, I swear to the throne. We don't do that anymore. But back in Jesus' time, people did that all the time. They made a promise or swore or made an oath to the throne. And if you remember in Matthew, Jesus yells at the Pharisees for doing so, because they don't understand that the throne represents God's control over the universe. And so they're throwing around like, ah, they're, they're being really f- uh, fickle, um, flippant with 
the, God's dominion. It says this, woe to you blind guides. You say, if anyone swears by the temple, it means nothing, but anyone who swears by the gold is bound by the oath. You fools, what is greater, the gold or the temple that makes the gold? You also say, if anyone swears by the altar, it means nothing. But if anyone swears by the gift on the altar, he is bound by an oath. You blind men, which is greater, the gift or the altar? Therefore, anyone who swears by the altar swears by it and anyone, everything on it. This is the verse right here. And anyone who swears by heaven swears by God's throne and by God who sits on the throne, Matthew chapter 23. We don't often think as Christians that God is seated on a throne and is currently actively ruling all of, the, all of mankind, the history of man, the ways of man. He has dominion over it. That doesn't diminish our free will, our opportunity to make decisions or all those things. God can have both at the same time. He's that big that he can have control of the universe and still allow us to have free will. But God's throne is significant, and when they stand before it, it is the centerpiece for the rest of this story to come forth. So let's look at three. And he who sat there had the appearance of jasper and carnelian, and around the throne it had the appearance of an emerald. There's two stones, jasper and carnelian. They're both kind of like red gems, right? So God is this multi, he, he, the throne is, he's appearing, his appearance is like this multifaceted red gem as, as John is looking at it. And as we know, red represents blood. It represents justice. It represents forgiveness. It represents life. Red is the most powerful color that we have. Whenever someone wants to show power in a business meeting, they wear a red tie, right? They don't wear a gray one. When we want to sell something, we put a lady with red lipstick on it. When we want to sell a car, we have a red car. Red is a color that creates in the human condition like us to stop and look. And in part because it's the color of blood. But God is shown here in this first picture in this incredible reflective kind of red jewel surrounded by these green jewels, like almost this green jewel rainbow and so it's just like Christmas colors, green and red. It's Santa Claus in the sky. That's where we get that from, Peach, Santa Claus. No, I'm just kidding, that's a lie. Um, but green also represents life. And we're talking about the life source and center of the universe, of God. Like, we live and move and have our being in God. And without him, we don't even get breath. God is the life center and source of the universe. And we're going to see... Actually, let me, let me read this again because it's pretty wild. It says this. The one who sat there had an appearance of jasper and carnelian, these red gems, incredible, beautiful red gems. And around the throne of God, there was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. And the rainbow, because you're, we're going to get thunder and lightning and justice and judgment and the power source of the universe, it's a little scary but the rainbow represents the grace and mercy of God. The rainbow represents the mercy of God that comes after the judgment of God. And in our culture, the rainbow represents sexual anarchy, as many of us know. But 
In the Bible, it represents the mercy of, and kindness of God after the judgment of God. So at the center of his throne, you have God as the power source of the universe, but he's surrounded by a rainbow, which represents he's surrounded by his mercies. Uh, from my book, I wrote this thing about our current use of a rainbow, and it says, it said... For anyone reading, the examples are redundant as the celebration of the sexual anarchy pride flag ha hangs in almost every corporate office and major retail chain across the country and has been brazenly flown on U.S. embassies around the world. If one had eyes to see, they could have predicted that the emblem to march forth the anarchic madness would be to glory in sexual disorientation. Philippians 3.19, for... As I often told you before and now say again, even with tears, many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction, their God is their belly, and their glory is their shame. The glory is their shame is literally the pride flag. It is an affirmative statement that declares, I will not be ashamed of dislodging myself from God's order. And in fact, I will wave my anarchy against heaven itself with a token in my hand. A flag to declare the darkness, a pendant to shout down the eternal order, a banner to curse the heavens and identity slips further away and the image of God morphs on the continuum into the spiritless things. A rainbow around the throne of God is not just seen in Revelation, it's also seen in Ezekiel chapter one, I'll read the scripture, and it was like the appearance of a rainbow in the clouds on a rainy day. It was so radiant around him. The, the rainbow in part represents the beauty of God hidden in creation. Like you don't always get to see it. And when you do see it, you tell everybody and you're like, there it is. And it's only there for a moment. And it doesn't look like the rest of the sky. It starkly stands out in this incredible shape and color and grabs our attention that this incredibly beautiful, transient thing is momentarily appearing. And it reminds me almost of a tear in the sky that we could look into the promise of God, his mercy for mankind, into the future life with God that surrounded his throne with a rainbow. Beautiful colors, mercy of God. And we've taken that symbol and we've trashed it in our day and we've and it's, instead, of being, instead of being almost like this portal to heaven, which is the rainbow surrounding the throne of God, it's a portal to hell in our time, in our, in our day. And if people rightly knew that God has incredible beauty and life and forgiveness, these are all the things that the throne represents. Forgiveness and life and beauty if people knew that, then they wouldn't be doing with that rainbow flag the things that they are currently doing with it. Amen? Okay, um, next. Around the throne, there were 24 elders. There were thrones and elders, 24 elders, white garments and white golden crowns on their heads. The number 24 in the Bible it represents leadership or authority, but specifically it represents biblical leadership or leadership in the church or in the body of Christ in the house of God. 
Um, there are 24 priests in David's Levitical order in 1 Chronicles 24, 3 through 19. And then there are 24 Levitical worship leaders in 1 Chronicles 25, uh, 6 through 31. And also 24 gatekeepers in 1 Chronicles 26, 17 through 19. They all represent God's government. And um, they sit on the thrones. And if you'll remember last week in Laodicea, one of the promises of God was that if you overcome with me, Laodicea, you will be seated on my throne which is incredible because Laodicea is crashing and burning. They are lukewarming. They are in really rough, a really rough position. And God doesn't say to them, if you turn and repent, I'll let you in the kingdom, but you have to stand in the back, right? If you repent and turn of your, like repent of your ways and turn towards me and start behaving right, like you can stand like third row to the back, maybe fourth row, like, No, the promise is that they get to sit on his throne with him. Ephesians chapter 2. Is this right? No. Uh, Revelation chapter 2. To the one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne as I also conquered and sat with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Okay, so then we have these elders, and the elders are sitting there with crowns. The elders represent the church that is currently, well, let me say it this way. The 24 elders represent the church from the beginning of time to its final and ultimate fulfillment, and the 24 elders also represent us before the throne. Ephesians chapter 2, and God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in heavenly realms in Christ Jesus in order that in the coming ages he might display the surpassing riches of his grace demonstrated by his kindness to us in Jesus Christ. So this picture that's outside of time are these elders that represent not just patriarchs, the saints of the past, not just people in the future, but they actually represent us currently now standing in faith, walking with Jesus, pursuing relationship with God, and that there are people, and this is what the elders do, and it'll be more apparent in chapter five, is that they bring the prayers of the saints to God. And what is that? That's the priestly function. When you're communicating between God and man on behalf of others, that's a priestly role. But they have crowns on their heads, golden crowns, which means they also have a kingly role. So they are, Revelation 1-6, kings and priests before God their Father. That's exactly what these guys are. It's incredible how interwoven and interrelated the book of Revelation is. These scriptures don't stand on their own without any kind of interpretation. They cross-reference and cross-interpret and support each other here in this book and then throughout the Old and New Testament. Verse 5, from the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder. And before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. And so... This picture of God's throne has a lot to do with God's initial judgment. The scripture says that the word of God um, is like rain that comes down from the heavens. It waters the earth and it does not return 
until it has accomplished the task which God sent it out for. How many are familiar with that verse in Isaiah? The word of God waters the earth and then it does not return until it accomplishes the task. That means that it does return. And so the word of God goes out, it accomplishes its task, and it goes back. And so there's a theologian um, friend of mine that says that the word of God applies cyclically to times and seasons to peoples. And so that when we read the scripture, we see that was for that time and that season and those people. But there are also scriptures that apply to me because the word of God applies cyclically. It's not a closed artifact that we just look at with a microscope and say, well, that was for somebody else. God doesn't behave that way. Yes, he does. He still behaves that way, and he behaves in a cyclical fashion, and his prophetic word happens cyclically to all of time. And so at the beginning of the story of mankind in the book of Genesis, in chapter 6, we see that mankind was so full of violence and immorality that God said, I have to press the reset button on the whole world. And he does so with a flood. And there is lightning and thunder and massive storms and God floods the earth. And after God floods the earth with his, with his justice and judgment because of the wickedness of mankind, there is a rainbow in the sky where God says, I'm not going to judge the world with a flood anymore. Here you have the rainbow around the throne of God, but also emanating from the throne and around the throne there came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder before the throne. And so we have in this picture this incredible picture of the mercy of God, but at the same time, we're reminded of the rainbow and the first time we see it in the scripture. There's a theological principle called the rule of first mention. And that rule says this, whenever we see a thing the first time in the Bible, we use it in our interpretation all throughout the rest of the scripture. So when we see rainbows in the Bible, we look to both God's judgment and God's justice. And here from the throne come flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder. We're outside of time and we're reminded that it's not just one time that God will judge the world with intensity, but again, at the end of the age, God will judge the world with intensity again. To some, he will show mercy because he's a merciful and beautiful God, and he's surrounded by beauty. But we can't forget that from the center of the throne is coming forth incredible amounts of power representing justice and judgment. Lightning fundamentally represents power from the heavens, right? That's what it is. It's electricity in the sky, in the clouds. It's a power source that's in the heavens. And it's a reminder to people to say God is the ultimate power source in the heavenlies. And it's coming from the throne because it's saying that God is in control over the ultimate, over ultimate power over the universe. Exodus 19, 16, it's the same thing that happens when Moses sees God on the mountain. On the third day when the morning came, there was thunder and lightning and a thick cloud was upon the mountain and a very loud blast of the ram's horn went out and all the people in the camp trembled. I don't know if God had a horn or somebody just had a really loud horn, but it happened. And then in verse 17, then Moses brought the people out from the camp to meet with God and they stood 
at the foot of the mountain. This is one of the reasons that God shows up incarnate in Christ and reveals himself to man as a man. Because God really cares about free will. Because without free will, there is no love. Right? If I program my wife with a chip in her head to clean my room, which we're looking into. No, I'm joking. To do things that are loving for me, that's not called love if I program it. It's robotics. You're forced to because you're influenced by an external power source that's greater than your autonomy. If God comes to earth in his fullness and flashes of thunder and lightning in the full breadth of his power source, human beings lose their autonomy. They lose their ability to say, okay, I choose to be with this (laughs) giant power source that will obviously smash me if I don't. This is one of the reasons that God appears as Christ and people say, well, God, if you're just real, why don't you just show me? Because if God shows up in his fullness, we lose our autonomy. We lose our ability to to say, nah, I choose, uh, you know, I know you're the source of power and life for all of creation, but you know, I just feel like doing my own thing. I'm going to work it out. It doesn't work that way because the influence is so great. This is why Proverbs says it's the glory of God to hide a matter and the glory of kings to seek a matter out because God likes to hide his glory. He likes to hide his power. He likes to wear big and baggy shirts even though he has huge muscles. You know what I'm saying, Rahim? You know what I'm saying? All right, let's read that again. From the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder. And before the throne were seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of the Lord. And so we have seven lampstands back in chapter one. You remember that? And here again before the throne are seven torches of fire. Some verses say they're actually lampstands. This is really important because I think sometimes believers think their life in God is really tiny or like the world is really big and we're the small ones, the church is just kind of eking by. Before God, the power source of the universe is his church. Before God, the creator of all things, the sustainer of life, the first thing before him is his church. His heart and his intention is upon his church, his people. That's the first thing it's upon. When you're, you know, you're like, sometimes we get, we get a little sucked into our jobs and like working out, I'm, for me, my working out legal briefs or I get distracted and I'm thinking about how big the New York State Supreme Court is or how big the Federal Southern District Court is. Like, it's so big and so intimidating and I'm just a little guy here. I'm not that little, but you know what I'm saying. In comparison, the world and all of its greatness, and all of its mountains, and all of its power, and all of its buildings, and all of its media is insignificant before the creator of the universe. The one who emanates flashes of lightning and thunder, who's surrounded by myriads of angels and hosts and elders bowing before him, who's the power source and life source of the universe, and in front of his throne is the church. Is 
you guys, you, eternal beings that don't always feel like eternal beings, you, people that God has a plan and purpose for to move into eternity, like John, to be pulled out of the island of Patmos, the island where we feel alone and isolated and pulled into God's dimension to walk with him and be him and know him. And it's not some kind of shallow, two-dimensional, singular-lined picture. It's just even a crack in it shows us incredible color and life and light and beauty. And that's what God has for us for eternity. I was terrified of eternity as a kid because I thought it was like a really bad church service that went on forever. And I was like, God, take me to hell because I don't want to be a part of that. It's not like that. It's incredibly beautiful and spectacular and beyond what we can imagine. And John is doing his best possible rendition to put this into the terms of man. And in the middle of this thing, before the throne of God, are these seven torches that represent the seven spirits of God atop of the seven lampstands, which is the church of Jesus Christ in its fullness. That's how much God thinks about you. And that's why, you know, sometimes we think about a scripture like that says that his thoughts are greater for us than the sand on the seashore. And you think, how can that be possible? How can God think about me that much? How can he care about me that much? Because it just feels like I'm going through my life day to day. It doesn't feel like that. But in God's dimension, his church and his people are at the center of his attention. And his plan for us is to move on into eternity with him in beauty and majesty and relation and wonder with him. And that's always been God's plan. God's plan has always to be with us, has been to be with us from the Garden of Eden till this picture here in Revelation. God's plan is to be with his sons and daughters. We're going to continue um, next week in the Sea of Glass, and there's all kinds of other crazy pictures about God. But I just want to encourage you, church, like, you are not alone. You are not wandering the universe. You are not that one actor that's alone on an island with Wilson, your volleyball, you know, talking to it. You are not isolated. Heaven is watching you. Heaven is engaged with your life and intent on where you're going and what you're doing. And God has thoughts about you. Not just ones that are like, man, I'm really annoyed that he's not fixed this issue. The center of who God is is forgiveness and life and beauty. And he's this incredible, majestic, I mean, this is not, this is in part who he is, multi-dimensioned jewel that's calling us to come and be with him. And it's not killjoy, it's not to give us less fun, it's actually, if you, if you know what you, who you are in God, it's both humbling because you know you deserve nothing, but it's also incredibly encouraging because you say, the eyes of heaven are on me. God cares about me. This life of dirt and clay and dust and trying to eke by to be famous in the eyes of men is going to be over in a moment. And I'm going to be standing before God and the angels and the saints. And I hope that he's going to say, well done, my good and faithful servant. Enter into the rest that I have prepared for you. Enter into this place that I have prepared for you.
And if we can have that kind of perspective, it, will, it draws us into praying. It draws us into reading our Bibles. It draws us into spending time with God, a God who likes us that much. Is that good, church? Why don't you stand up with me? Let's pray. Father, we thank you, God, that you reveal yourselves to your sons and daughters and that you revealed yourself to John and your kingdom to John on the island of Patmos, but but you wrote it down for all of us saints, for the history of the church to see your love, to see the intention of your heart, to see how much you care about us, even with all of your majesty and your power and wonder and beauty, you choose to call us your sons and daughters that the scripture says that we would be the firstborn among many brethren, that we wouldn't just be subjects, but we would be kings and priests unto God and our Father through the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.